podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello and welcome to The Fear of God, episode two. My name is Reed Lackey. And I'm Nathan Rouse. And uh, we're glad you're here. Um, If you listened to our last episode, then you already kind of know what this show is about. If you didn't listen to the episode and you're just curious about this particular thing, we are here discussing horror films, but with a very specific sort of framework. Um, We are discussing films uh, of a scarier variety, but through the lens of faith and uh, most specifically Christianity. Uh, So before we get into the, the film today, Nathan, how you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thank you for asking. I, uh, I feel like we should start this episode, and maybe this can be a recurring thing where we admit our mistakes, maybe have a bell sound effect <laughs> or something. You know, last episode, if you listened, we, uh, there was a Dean Koontz reference made by yours truly, and uh, I must eat some humble pie here and say I got it wrong. I got the title wrong. Um, within 30 minutes, Reed had... Googled and texted me an image of the exact title we're referring to. And and why don't you refresh our viewers, Reed, what was that exact mistake that I made? Well, we were talking about the the book Watchers, and uh, (laughs) you you aptly interrupted me and said, oh, I think it's actually called Watcher. And I was like, I'm pretty sure it's Watchers. And you sounded so confident. But, um, But unfortunately, at that moment. As most people with a microphone in front of them do. Sound confident. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. Well, and maybe that was just my, uh, you know, it's been a long time since I've read some Koontz. Maybe that's my Marvel comics reading over the years, The Watcher. Oh. But see, there's there's all sorts of nerd layers happening here. But yes, I got that wrong. <laughs> um, hopefully, I won't get something wrong today, and maybe it'll be your turn. But well, that'll remain to be seen. Well, lest you be the only one eating a little bit of humble pie, I said something at the tail end of last week's episode about the film today that I kind of feel the need to correct because before we get into specifics about the, the, the movie today, the film today we're discussing has a certain name attached to it that carries some divisive opinions, and that name is uh, the film director M. Night Shyamalan. And in the last episode, I uh, said very cavalierly that he wrote this movie, and in doing so, I neglected to mention the director's name, John Eric Dowdle, and I did not mention the actual screenwriter's name, Brian Nelson. All M. Night Shyamalan did for our film today was write the story, and I think he did have a hand in producing it, but then he turned it over to another screenwriter and another director, 
and I don't want to um, dismiss their efforts. Give some credit where it's due. Exactly. You know, because one day maybe we'll have an episode about a little movie called The Victim where a story like that can take on a little more... Uh... We don't talk about The Victim here. <laughs> we don't talk about The Victim here. That doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Maybe one day. Well, yeah. Thank you, Reed. For, yeah, you've introduced sort of our, our topic of conversation today, at least the subject matter of the movie Devil, which we felt was an appropriately titled, at least... Um, first kickoff launch movie to discuss. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I want to spend just a second just sort of recapping the movie in particular. It's uh, the story itself, as you noted, a uh, story by Shyamalan, and then we can sort of talk about some, you know, just what, what we like, what we disliked. Uh, I, for myself personally, I had seen the movie a number of years ago, closer to its release, and, and then wanted to just refresh myself for our conversation, so watched it again about a week ago. And the, the lovely thing about this movie, and actually one of the things I would put in the things I like category, is it's very simple. It's very straightforward. Folks on an ele- get stuck on an elevator and, and chaos ensues, basically. Um, it's real short and sweet, you know, so there's not a whole lot beyond that, except that, um, as the title implies, one of these folks may have far more nefarious um, you know, intentions than all of the other ones, and it's sort of a who did it. Um, type of story. So, so we'll kind of kick things off from there. I'm gonna I'm gonna rattle off a few things I just really enjoyed about the movie, and then you know feel free to do the same read. So, like one, you've already invoked the the fallen from grace former master M Night Shyamalan, who doggone it, I, I love the man for all his failings, and and bless his heart, he had such a yeah. such an about face career-wise, you know, a, a number of years ago at this point. But, man, those first flurry of films of his are just, I would still put them in high-ranked categories for myself. Certainly. Adore Sixth Sense. Um, I don't love it quite as much, but have a lot of respect and, and appreciation for Unbreakable. I personally love, uh, not Signs, I do like Signs, but I love The Village. Mm. Uh, that was, I think, critically probably when he started to lose some of his credibility, though, and I understand, you know, a lot of people didn't like the ending of that movie. And, and at that point, he'd kind of become the how does it end director, which is unfortunate. But right. for me personally, that movie, uh, whatever, whatever misgivings I might have about the ending are more than outweighed by how much I adored everything that, that led up to it. So, so anyway, uh, M. Knight, you know, had a great pedigree, kind of lost his way a little bit in terms of, I think, the work, definitely the credibility. Um, and so it felt like Devil might have been an attempt at a return to form. And, and man, you know, watching the credits for Devil, watching the sure. credits, you know, it's a Night Chronicles story, and he did the story. And, and even just seeing that phrase excites me. You know, like, sure. why are there not more of these? And, and honestly, I haven't done the research to know, are there or will there be more, quote-unquote, Night Chronicles? You know, but to me, that phrase is just fraught with a lot of potential. Well, and yeah, I'm just, go right ahead, jump in. Oh, I was just going to say that, that, like, yeah, unfortunately, uh, that was intended to be co- sort of coming out of his critical backlash, where his films were not being as well received. You, you, and I are in the minority in our affection for Village. I'm also very affectionate for Village, although I don't defend it adamantly against the people who hate it. I just I just am unashamedly like, I loved it. Well, but wouldn't you say, and, I, and clearly we're meant to talk about Devil here, but uh, as a brief caveat, wouldn't you say, though, that the people who, in your words, hate it, like, it's the ending that kills it for them? Like, is that what you found historically? Absolutely. 
yeah, pretty consistently the people who say they hate it, they hate it because of the ending. And I had my own sort of moment with that because a buddy of mine at the time had uh, had read the script because he worked for a production company, and he was talking to me about it before the movie even came out. And he said, if I give you this statement as a premise, what would you think that this movie would end? And he gave me a very simple, non-spoilery setup for The Village, and he said, what would you think a movie like that would end if there was a twist? And I said, uh, would it be this? And I guessed the ending, like right off the bat. And because of that, I was like, this is stupid. This is so dumb. I don't even know if I'm going to go see this movie. And then my cousin was in town, and he badly wanted to go see it, and I just wanted to defer to him. So I was like, okay, we'll go see it. And because I had already had my little, well, this ending sucks, whatever, I was so captivated by the movie. I think visually it's wonderful. I think there's some good performances in there. Um, I think there's some really nice touches in the village, and I think that most of the people who saw it had a reaction to the ending that just sullies everything yeah, else. Yeah. Well, and clearly, I think what we're finding is we need to do a whole episode on the village because, oh, I'd love to. Like you, I, lo- I love the atmosphere. Uh, it introduced us to Bryce Dallas Howard, who is herself a talent. I, I love mm-hmm. the score. It is just enchanting. Oh, it's a beautiful score. You know. So, so anyway, the village, M Night Shyamalan, Night Chronicles kicks us off into Devil. Um, who, yeah, he provided the story, um, though did not, as you've already referenced, uh, script it. And for me, you know, as far as switching gears appropriately into just talking about the the content of the movie Devil, like, don't get me wrong, you know, it, it won't crack a sort of top 10 of all time, even for me, top 10 of even horror movies, but I just really, sure. really like this movie. Like, I think it's a bit clunky in terms of scripting. It's really on the nose in some places. Right. But it is sh- it is short and sweet. It knows what it's doing, and it kind of gets in and gets out in a pretty effective manner. And I don't know. It's just it's very entertaining for what it is. Would you? How, how would you feel about it? Oh, I completely agree. And one of the things that shocked me as I was kind of doing some initial investigation, like, what were the reviews for this movie like? And you know what was surprising? I also loved the fact that it's kind of a brief movie. And that's something that a lot of critics uh, derided, that they, that they thought it was too brief, as if it was hurried or rushed. And I was like, mm. I so admire anytime somebody thinks, especially a scary story, but anytime anybody thinks that they can tell their movie in an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes, like I, that, I, that, I think, is, is a credit to a film these well, days. Well, and it's interesting that that's a criticism because, you know, this day and age, goodness gracious, you know, we think... Two hours and fifteen minutes is short. Exactly. I mean, it, we yeah. just we've we've entered, you know, full on bloat runtime uh, era. And I don't know. I mean, I guess there's some validity to sort of what you were saying as far as critics uh, not appreciating its its brevity. But I also think there are movies like this, and I, another one that comes to mind, though I'm sure there are others, is Phone Booth. You know, Colin Farrell years yeah. ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know these sorts of movies that take place in one location. You know, which of course aids budgetarily, but um, you, you can't have a two-hour movie of that. Right. You know? I mean, I'm going to get bored. It's going to stretch believability. I don't know. It's it, it sort of ring. Maybe this is my theater background too. Like I like this sort of isolated location, just people interacting with each other, tension ratcheting up the further it goes. You know, something's going on, but you're not quite sure. Um, you can only sustain that for so long, I think, and maintain believability. I completely agree with you, and I think that the that. I just really admire, as I said, when a film can be can be focused. And I do think, getting back to some of the things I liked and, and some of the things I would criticize about Devil, I do think that, like you said, the script is a little on the nose at times, which I forgive sure. specifically because... Because it's a movie about forgiveness. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, I, f- I forgive it mostly because it's sort of set up to be a kind of fable. Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. It's sort of more of a... It's kind of a morality play, really. I mean... It is, you know, it is. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. And so that's that's something that I that I don't mind when a, when a story that is intentionally sort of setting out to be a kind of a morality play or a or a fable of sorts. I don't mind when those scripts are on the nose because that's... Uh, it's based in the intention of the filmmaker. I also think that the performances are pretty solid. I mean, they're a little ham-fisted at times in individual moments, but I think that they're, uh, like you said, it, the film creates a, a decent atmosphere. It's it's a very sort of confined story, both uh, literally and metaphorically. And, uh, and I really responded pretty strongly to uh, the fact that it was unapologetic about, hey, we're talking about religious subjects. Like, it opens with a Bible verse. It's mm-hmm. the very first conversation is about the devil and his work, and then it goes right into conversations about forgiveness and everything. And, and while I don't demand by any stretch that, that films do that, I admire when a film will be like, hey, we're just going to put it out here that this is what we're dealing with. Sure. And hopefully you have some scares along the way and hopefully you have some fun along the way. And that's that's what we're trying to do. And I think that is to the film's credit. I also just, at the end of the day, I'm not going to hail this as any sort of grand, phenomenal example of a horror film. But I love the movie. Well, and it's interesting, uh, uh, a thought that may need some unpacking in a future episode or something. But in this conversation of morality play, fable sort of thing... Um, I remember reading somewhere a couple of years ago, and, and the context totally eludes me, but this, maybe it was a filmmaker or author or something, but it was about religious subject matter and why this particular thing they'd created was a period piece. Um, effectively, what they were saying is, well, the reason I chose a period piece to address religious subject matter is because in our modern era, there are so many opinions and factions and versions of what a person means by that, you know, like in whether mm. you're talking American Christianity or whether you're talking European, whatever, you know, like there's so many different splinter versions of what you can say and everyone's going to have a different opinion on whether that's interpreted correctly or not. And so as far as devil goes, to me, when you couch it so firmly as they do in this sort of morality context, it's very cut and dry. And and there's not a whole yeah. lot of room for like, well, what exactly? Let's Let's examine the nuance of this and that. Like, no. I mean, they are stating that there is concrete good and there's concrete evil, and we're just going to kind of approach it from that standpoint and see where the chips fall. And I I can really appreciate that about what they're doing, even though it's set in clearly kind of a modern context in terms of just its trappings. It's really not examining modernity, you know, religious life in modern world. Right. Um, You know, and before we get too far down that rabbit trail, because that's definitely stuff we want to talk about, a a few more technical things and then We'll, we'll get there. One thing I just adored about the movie and, and you know, kind of goes into, again, this concrete black, concrete white sort of thing is I love the opening shot. Like there is something about mm. this, you know, I don't know if you remember, but um, well, you said you've seen oh, it three yeah. or four times. So, yeah, you, you know, you're starting on this water, which our brains naturally associating with, OK, now we're going to pan up. But when we pan up, the world is upside down, you know, and oh, I was yeah. like, man, that is so effective. Because what happens in the end, you know, and this is uh, uh, t- touching very clearly on the themes of the movie as well, but in the end, we are, have pretty much the exact same shot, but right side up, you know, and so I just really yeah. think stuff like that is super effective uh, in this movie, you know, so, so that's something I really enjoyed about it. You know, 
take or leave. We're going to talk about spoilers in these podcasts. You know, it just kind of is what it is. We're, we're unpacking these movies very specifically. But, you know, yeah, take or leave, you know, the fact that it ends up being <laughs> the old lady. You know, it's like never trust an old woman on an elevator. I don't know if that's what the movie's trying to say. But. <laughs> well, can I say, too, for on that note, um, when I think about this movie, like my memory, and of course having just rewatched it like a couple of days ago, my memory of it with time will probably continue to go back to that reveal when it's revealed that sure. she is the devil because that is one of the creepiest things <laughs> that I've seen. I think that movie, that moment is so effective. She is so scary when it, when she yeah, right. sort of comes back up because you think she's dead. And then when she comes back and that's actually, she's, is she the first to go? No, she's the second. She's the second because the the, creep, the first is the business guy. That's right. Yeah, the, the the mattress salesman is the is the first one to go. But that's actually a trope. Like this film owes a lot. I don't want to get too too derailed with history here, but the film owes a lot both uh, structurally and in how the the specific beats play out to an old Agatha Christie novel called And Then mm-hmm. There Were None, and that is a trope that has been used in many horror films since then. You have a a certain number of people in a confined space, and then one by one they start mm-hmm. dropping while the mystery unfolds of who is doing this. And in Agatha Christie's novel, uh, and this will be spoilery for that, but not specifically, the victim is later revealed to be somebody who you thought was already dead, just like in Devil. Gotcha. Um, and gotcha. uh, so, so it definitely is beholden to that structural trope. But I thought this specific reveal, when it's when it's found to be her, I I was like, okay, that's creepy. <laughs> that's really annoying. well, especially because the the way the shot is framed, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what's happening in the foreground, but you know, characters are tending to each other, or someone's been injured, or something, and then there's in the background, she just rises up. You know, it's it's very oh my gosh, very effective. Yeah. Well, you you're you're sort of um, perhaps unintentionally segueing into something I think we should start implementing in our podcast time and that's just a segment where we talk about the scary moments you know what because because oh the, yeah you know we're talking about horror movies and even even the most um inculcated of us into this world are not immune to the effects of these pieces of work and some of this stuff is just freaky and scary and and you know it we we call out the shadows so that hopefully the shadows flee um and we're, we're, let's talk about some scary moments um i'll lead up i think i've got I've got two specific ones. I'll start with one, and then if depending on what you got, we'll go from there. I think sure. for me, the very the very first jump moment, um, you know, is when the young the young female uh, in the elevator car has that vision of all the dead bodies on the floor. Oh yes, you know, just because up to yes. that point, we're pretty you know that my memory uh, fails me here. I don't know what sort of supernatural stuff we've seen yet, but to me, that's the real line of demarcation between okay, now we've We've, we've gone over into something different than just characters, real people in a real elevator car. You know what I mean? Um, it's a real jump moment yeah. for me. I, yeah, um, that one didn't, the, the movie didn't have a ton for me of moments where I would be mm-hmm. startled specifically. But what I loved is I, again, loved that the opening uh, voiceovers on the film is talking about, you know, hey, you know, my, my mother, I, I can't remember if it's mother or grandmother, but, you know, my mother or grandmother used to tell me this story about the devil coming to, to torment the living. And so it, it just dives right into what we're, what we're dealing with. And so then I was, for me, I was always sort of aware, even from the first viewing, I was always sort of aware that this is where we're headed. So when things suddenly start to go awry, 
for me, that's when like I start to get really excited. Like, oh, now we're now we're going to start getting into the to the meat of this. You know, like she gets she has that vision. She gets uh, bit on the back, which yeah. is a horribly yeah. creepy idea. <laughs> um, and then uh, you know, so so when that stuff started to happen. For me, I'm thinking, okay, now we're going to start getting into the actual meat of what's happening here. The parts that I that I sort of responded to less strongly were when some of the uh, the innocent people kind of died, like you know the elevator man uh, who is, is just trying to help them, and then he dies. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not quite sure. And they even throw it into the into the script where they're saying like, you know, the innocent always suffer. Sure. And but but that felt to me a little little unnecessary. That's what we call padding in a script. <laughs> Basically, yeah, cuz you needed We need about 5 more minutes in here. <laughs> exactly. Cuz cuz the critics are going to complain about the runtime. <laughs> exactly. Man, we only have a 1-hour movie. Let's uh let's let's throw another death in there. Who else can we kill? But uh but for me, probably again the scariest moment for me was was when the devil itself is revealed. And uh, and I actually, you know, I kind of started getting a little unnerved when uh, the when the security officer or the man who's watching the security cameras and knows this whole story when he sees the face in the in the playback. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a creepy moment. I think for me, a last one um, to touch on, because I'm sort of with you. And and honestly, I think this will make sense. You know, I'd seen the movie before, so I knew what was roughly going to play out. So there wasn't as much inherent like frights as there might have been on a first time viewing. But I think a just chilling moment for me was late in the movie. I can't remember who's alive or dead at this particular point, but you know, one of the MOs of the death scenes is the lights in the elevator go out. You know? Yeah. And then, you know, bad stuff's afoot. Um, so uh, to me, a real chilling moment is late in the movie. This is happening and, and whoever's remaining is aware like, Oh, Oh no, this, you know, this is bad news. Well, the lights go out and the young, the young woman has this blood curdling turn on the lights. Oh yes. I mean, it's, yes. It's, it's very chilling. You know, it's it's not so much a jump out of your seat sort of moment. It's just like, oh man, this is just torture for these people and uh, just just a real chilling moment. So, you know, I don't know if you have any other sort of specific moments that really affected you in any particular way. No, uh, not specifically. Like I'd say, you know, there were less there were less startling moments sure. and more uh, a sequence of kind of creepy and unsettling moments that I did think were very effective. But this is not the type of movie that I spent a lot of time like sure. tense with or jumping out of my chair. This was more just sort of a creepy sort of unsettling feeling. And and this might be something of a transition uh, accidentally, but like for me too, the fact that it led so heavily with this conversation about devil and forgiveness and everything, there was something innate in me that said, okay, this is going to be exploring a subject that I'm comfortable exploring, particularly in even like fearful concepts. So I think that sort of limited how many times I was susceptible to being sure, tense sure. or jumping or being scared because I was kind of more immediately in tune with, oh, this, this is, like you said, this is a morality tale. Right. So that's, that's yeah. what I'm kind of on board for. I mean, it's, it's kind of a cool, I, I, again, sort of reiterating what I said at the front. I mean, I just really enjoyed the movie just for almost how straightforward it is. You know, it doesn't really, absolutely doesn't really, it, it establishes its own boundaries and does well what it does well and plays ably in the boundaries that it itself establishes. And I really appreciate it from that standpoint. Yeah, I did too. And why don't we spend, you know, cause, cause we've got another maybe 10, 15 minutes here. Why don't we spend a little bit of time talking uh, about the, the, some of the conclusions it draws from its, its sort of thematic 
front where it's dealing right up right up top it's talking about the devil comes in human form to prey on its victims the film opens with a bible verse mm-hmm. and and that's first peter 5 8 which i don't have written down and, and unfortunately can't quote verbatim that well without that but but you know basically the the devil you know comes as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and that's sort of what the film leads with and then I, again, I don't think I mentioned it when you said it, but that opening shot is wonderful. I love that opening shot. But then the very first thing that we get that's like actually a conversation is with uh, you know our main character, played by Chris Messina, who is uh, he's having a conversation about forgiveness. We find that there's been a tragedy in his life, and and uh, somebody's talking with him uh, because he's struggling with alcoholism, and somebody's talking with him about forgiveness. Uh, yeah, it's actually his his um, AA. Yes, um, it's his AA sponsor. Sponsor, sponsor. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, and uh, he uh, so he's he's having a conversation about forgiveness, and we know already about this character that he doesn't want to forgive the person who has perpetrated this tragedy in his life, and the film leads with that, and then doesn't really bring it back in until it wraps up its story, sure. and you come to realize like it peppers little hints of it along the way. You know, the security guard says to Christmasina is a is a detective. Um, he's a police officer. I don't know if he's actually a detective, but, but basically he's there and he's the one, he's the law enforcement officer who takes charge of the scene. And then while he's watching all of this, the man who is aware of this more supernatural component, the, the devil story, he tells him, he says, there's a reason we're the audience. And that's your first hint of there's something more intentional going on just besides these, these people in the elevator, that it's also the people watching the story in the elevator. And it doesn't come back around until the end. Uh, and again, if we didn't make it clear enough, this is spoiler heavy. If you haven't seen Devil, uh, we've already spoiled quite a bit. Go watch it uh, and then come back and listen. But uh, but if you have seen it, here it is. That then, of course, at the end, you discover that the last victim in the elevator is actually the man who was responsible for killing uh, Chris Messina's wife and daughter, and that it was a it was an accident, but it was a hit and run, and he's been living under the shadow of this sort of this cloud of forgiveness. And what I thought, again, we're just sort of, I just want to sort of dive into the conversation. What, what ultimately disarms the devil's power in the film is that this man who, had, who was a hit-and-run driver killed this man's wife and daughter. Uh, didn't mean to, but that doesn't change anything. And he confesses that. And when he confesses that and, and in a very literal way repents of it, then the devil no longer in this film has any power over him. He no longer has any claim over him. So the film's last act, the film's sort of final 10, 15 minutes, all revolves thematically around Mm, that. mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I just, for me, it was interesting to me that a major Hollywood, this isn't, these are not, I mean, I don't know what their personal lives are like, but this was a Hollywood production. I know that Shyamalan has dealt with matters of faith in his stories before. It's something that we've somewhat come to expect from some of the stories that he's involved in. But I was really surprised to have, you know, such an overt statement of like, hey, you confess, you repent, now the devil doesn't have any hold on you. And to end on an, I mean, the, the final line of the movie is, if the devil exists, then God has to exist too. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, what in the world? Like, this is <laughs> such You know, a as, as, you're, as you're describing this movie, you know, which I've already seen twice, of course, but... Um, you know, this this isn't easy. This could go if if movie store still existed, rest in peace. This you could you could easily put this on the 
Christian movie shelf next to Facing the Giants. Yes. <laughs> I, I think I think you'd have. I, I would. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, we we're joking, but uh, I mean, there, there's a very straightforward good evil conversation happening in here, and applies pretty explicit Judeo-Christian vernacular to the conversation. You know. So yeah, I mean, on a very literal standpoint. This is a movie not about one's conversion to saving faith in Jesus, but about the potency. The, the truth will set you free. You know, right. this person who has run from what he did and that what he knows he did um, for so long at this point. That is, you know, and and I have IMDb in front of me, so don't be too impressed with knowing the actor's name. But Logan Marshall Green, who plays who plays our you know, as you termed him the last victim, though I guess technically he's the last possible victim. Oh yeah. Um, you know, the whole the whole movie, he's very reserved and inward. We're sort of as viewers led on this rabbit trail of, well, maybe that's just because he's actually a bad guy. But but really it's because on a character level, he he's lived with this kind of noose around his neck for some time and doesn't know how to free himself from it. And then he's faced with Right. You know the possibility of of it sounds like a, a dumb thing, but but you know the movie operates in very black and white, like freedom or death. Do you want to be free, um, or do you want to not be? Right. And he chooses freedom, and I think that's a very powerful statement about you know the the ability to move forward in life. Even yeah, is the nature of forg- like you 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 introduced that the that the movie goes here. This idea of forgiveness. I mean that moment. And you could make a case that confession itself is one forgiving oneself, you know? Right. Um, I mean, the movie takes a very distinct path and has the Messina character, the the cop, who suffered the tragedy previous to the, the events on screen, that he forgives this character. But also, that's sort of inspired by what he witnesses in the elevator, which is this person forgiving themselves. Um, yeah. And yeah. I may have cut you off on, a, on a, a trail you were on, but wanted to throw out, too, like... Uh, I took some notes while you were talking about an idea that came to me. Something that I really appreciate about this movie is how atypical it is um, in many ways. You know, like when they're in the cop car at the end of the movie, and I do think um, there could have been a little more build up to it, but Messina's character just sort of says, I forgive you. You know, it's it's a little out of the blue, but but we understand right. what it means for this character and the, the build up that's gotten him there. But I think what's interesting to me about how that plays out in the movie Devil, as opposed to so many movies, is in a traditional kind of Hollywood thriller, the hero embarks on this mission of vengeance to, to destroy the person who's destroyed them. You know, in this case, right. um, the mechanic character killed his wife and daughter in a car accident and, you know, in, in, in our normal sort of Hollywood shoot 'em up style, the traditional version of that is Chris Messina knows who it is. And he's been plotting for years to get back at this guy. And he finally catches up to him. And someone has to talk him out of it. No, man, think of how this is going to affect the rest of you. You, you know what I mean? Do, do, you know, that, that sort of traditional kind of sure. John Wayne, if you will, sort of approach to this type of story that I think is very powerful that that doesn't happen at all. It's about... It's all about the interior life. Yeah. And that's so different than what you typically see. And one thing that I do think sets us apart that, and, and, and honestly, it makes me think of something I dislike a lot in, in the American church of these sort of hell houses, you know, like take the teenagers to watch oh, right. death and dismemberment in the hopes that they'll get scared to death to convert to Jesus. Like, I, I don't really know 
how much I appreciate those. Um, but that's sort of what's happening in this movie, which is Messina's is watching this sort of hell play enacted before him. And it causes this great upheaval in him in, on, on his interior life. You know, I think that's really a powerful story that's being told there. Well, and it's it, you said that it sets the movie apart, that it doesn't make that decision. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, it would have been really easy for them to have ended, and, and probably a bit more in line with most other horror films, if they had ended with Messina making a deliberate decision not to forgive the man, and then Messina being the last victim hmm. of the devil. They could have easily gone that way, but they chose not to. Which actually, that, that's kind of, that would have been kind of an interesting choice, but, uh, you know, uh, that, that route. But. Yeah, and I think for, for me as a viewer, and maybe other viewers would have felt this way, I know obviously because it's a film that they made that the filmmakers feel this way, I know I cared too much about the Messina character at that point to have been sure, happy with sure. that ending. But it is a decision that they could have made, and the fact that they chose not to, I had, I had sort of two thoughts going into it. I, I have a, a, a Bible verse to introduce here, and then, and then I want to get your thoughts on one, one sort of final question. So Proverbs 28.13 says this, and I did write this down. I'm not that spiritual that I remember all this stuff. But Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So the principle at play is what we see play out in Devil, which is essentially the people who hid their sins. Everybody in that elevator is a transgressor of something sure. at some point. And the ones who refused to sort of take ownership of that are the ones who fell victim to it. And the only one in that elevator who decides to confess what they've done and take ownership and responsibility of what they've done obtain mercy. Not only are they not a victim of the Devil, but they also are forgiven by their by their victim, mm -hmm. uh, and and so they they fully obtain mercy. Now my question is, and I have an, uh, one sort of last Bible verse to introduce on this idea is we can kind of understand without too much deliberation this I, this connection between confession and forgiveness. If you take for me personally, if somebody has wronged me, and my family and you as my friend will will attest to this, if somebody has wronged me in a way that genuinely has affected and hurt me, all I really require pretty quickly to get over it is a sincere apology or taking ownership sure. of it. Like the moment somebody's like, hey, yep. I was a jerk to you, I shouldn't have done that. The issue is pretty much done with me. Like at that point, I'm like, all is forgiven. We, you know, we're fine. Um, and that's really all it takes. And the longer somebody continues to sort of deny that they've done anything, that's when it gets hard for me. But if somebody immediately is just like, you know what, I was rude, or I apologize, I, sh I didn't intend to do this, or I didn't want to do that, then, then I'm fine. Like, at that point, like, we're, we're done. We're good. And so, so that idea of confession and forgiveness may seem obvious, but my question then, and something that I wrestle with on a little bit larger scale, is, is that just? Is it justice that confession and forgiveness works that way? Because some would argue and say, well, now this guy who ended the life of this man's wife and daughter, now essentially, I don't know that they'd say he gets off scot-free, but he does not, because the cop forgives him, he does not suffer the intense consequences that perhaps he should suffer, and that's injustice. And, you know, I have certain feelings about that. Um, for me, I think that true justice must be, have in it some component of mercy. Now, that's not to say that, all, that, that everybody just gets off the hook for all of the horrible things that we do to one another, but I think if you really are going to engage in this conversation about what true justice is versus vengeance, 
versus you know taking revenge for something like you said is is a very common sort of story idea for you know you've you've robbed me of my family I'm now going to go and and seek revenge for you we've seen that story many times but in the in the comparison between a vengeance idea and a justice idea I think justice almost possibly requires a component or an element of mercy infused within it. There's a, a sort of the last Bible verse I had written down to discuss is from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. And I just, uh, I think this is interesting. This is, I believe, the New International Version of it. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now it's talking about God, but I thought it was interesting that it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not just simply he is faithful to forgive us our sins. Like it, the, the text throws in that word like he is faithful and, and just or righteous. He's doing the right thing to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I know I'm kind of springing that on you uh, without a lot of prep beforehand, but do you have any specific sort of thoughts or response to that idea? Is it injustice that people are forgiven? Um, or is that an element required for true justice? Uh, yes, I think that's a, that's a, there, there's a where to even begin there, but, um, and perhaps another 30 minutes, we can, we can kind of really mind that for all it's worth. But <laughs> at the same time, I think that for people who believe or, 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 you know, there's so, there's so many definitions, there's so many kind of, um, interpretations, views of how to, to define certain things, you know, justice and mercy. For me personally, there is no, my definition is that justice doesn't exist if mercy is not present. And, and yeah. you know, um, I, I read a book last year, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which is a beautiful, beautiful book just about the American prison system. And, and oh, it's gorgeous book. Um, you know, this person who doesn't even necessarily build the context of his book on Judeo-Christianity, but it's, it's all over the place. You know, and I think that, you know, we're diving into these spiritual conversations. I think that anyone who really wrestles truthfully with the life of Jesus can't come away with any answer other than justice doesn't exist if mercy is not present. Like what we, what we in bullet riddled 2016 America would define as justice is not faithful. You know, I mean, uh, it's funny while you're reading, I I wanted to get my quote right here and, and this is not Bible, but it almost might as well be. It is Shakespeare and, and in the merchant of Venice, you know, there's this whole, whole piece and it says the quality of mercy is not strained. You know, it's just, it, is exa- it is the conversation that you and I are having, mercy versus justice. You know, it, it goes into this talk of justice, and then it says, but mercy is above all of this, and it is enthroned in the hearts of kings and attribute to God himself. Mercy yeah. only exists as, as defined by something above us. Because, yeah, our version of justice does not include mercy. It is right. you wronged in a very specific, very palpable way, thus eye for an eye. You know, but here now we get back to scripture. You have heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, you know, this is this is eye for an eye is not justice. I mean it, it just isn't. It it you know, it, it is the movie that has the vengeance seeking vigilante, which hear me, all of us enjoy those stories on a certain level because they do appeal to that sort of baser side. Like, sure. You know, that feeling of, yeah, you know, just right. go get them. You know, I think of like a movie I actually like, 
though I would not at all put on the Christian shelf next to devil, <laughs> um, is ma- uh, man on fire. You know, oh, yeah. This, it is the definition of vigilantism, you know, seeking to right a grievous wrong, in this case, the abduction of a young girl, which is sort of in our culture, the, the, the paragon of innocence and purity, you know, and, and just blazing hell to get to this person, you know. Um, but what happens in that movie? Right. right. He, yeah, spoiler alert for this one. He dies. Right. Because the, 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 the moral system that even a, a story like that that doesn't really acknowledge God, it might. I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, but not in a real tangible way. But the moral system states the things he has done, justice declares you got to die for it, even though you were even though your intentions were pure and good you can't survive this movie. Right. That also brings to mind, I'm, no, I'm jumping all over the place, like Road to Perdition. I remember watching that movie, which is an amazing movie and a wonderful story, but thinking, again, spoiler alert, the Tom Hanks character will die. And I had not even, I didn't even know the story. I just knew, okay, the moral system this movie is trying to apply to these characters means, regardless of how the story ends, that character is not going to survive. Right, right. And I think that's the beauty of something like Devil. That's the beauty of if we're going to take it to this level and these are the conversations we are having, thus we should, is of God and of Jesus, which is you committed a heinous act, but you don't have to die. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really powerful message, you know, but, but part of your not having to die, and you can apply that in as literal or figurative a way as you want, involves some participation. And that participation, at least as far as the movie Devil is concerned, is confession. Yeah. You know? The truth is going to set you free. You know, be, be free. Be whole. But you've got to sort of help out a little bit. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's a really lovely way to, to sort of wrap up the conversation is just this idea yeah, yeah. that, um, that y- yes, you've done horrible things, but you do not have to die. Uh, there, is, there is mercy to be obtained with just a, a singular act of participation on your part, which is you know, confession and ownership. And we know, lest, lest viewers think that we, or viewers, listeners think that we feel this way, that we understand that there are consequences for actions and, and that sometimes justice demands a certain degree of consequences for this. But Well, and I you think, made the point earlier, and I, I want you to finish that thought, but you made the point earlier, and or I thought this, you know, in the movie Devil, uh, Messina forgives him. That's, that's the spiritual act that needs to happen to display what this movie is going after. But also in a sort of quote-unquote justice standpoint, he's still going to be, that, that guy is probably still going to be charged with something. You know, that's justice. Oh, absolutely. You know, if, we're, if we're going there. And so that sort yes. of validates what you're saying, that there would be some natural consequences for one's actions, but they don't have to be of spiritually great, you know, consequences. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly right. There will be a consequence, but you can avoid the ultimate consequence, which again, I can think of no greater ultimate consequence than the devil will claim you, <laughs> both physically and spiritually. You know, so and that's the that's the fictional, uh, you know, sort of universe that this film establishes. That in this universe, in this in the universe of the film Devil, uh, like Devil will claim you. Period. And the only sort of defense against it is you confess and you repent. And in that case, yes, there will still be consequences for what you've done, but you will not have to face the ultimate consequence because there is mercy at hand for you being extended to you, both literally and metaphorically. Sure. And um, 
and yeah, I think unless you had anything more burning to say, I think that's a great note to to sort of conclude our conversation of this. If you if you um, have not seen Devil and uh, are still listening to this, then we have spoiled <laughs> almost everything. But it is still it is it is short and it is sure. worth your time. I think yep. it's worth your time. I think it's a good film. I would, as we've said multiple times, I wouldn't hail it as you know like it's not the absolute pinnacle of what horror films can do. But it is a good film that is focused, and it is atmospheric, and it'll provide, I think, some good thrills. And if you are interested in some of the subjects that we've been discussing coming out of the film, then it's definitely something that would give some food for thought on on that area. And uh, as we say on every episode of the show, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of the conversation, and we'd love to continue having this conversation with you guys. You can follow us on Twitter. Um, uh, Nathan, can you give us our Twitter handle? Sure, sure. It is at the fear of God. Um, short, short and sweet. Yeah, you could also like us on Facebook um, at yeah, the fear of God. Yeah, the Twitter, so you can get there from there. And you can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? They can find me at the Nathan Rouse. Wonderful. You can also email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail dot com. That's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, because we, we want to hear from you guys what, you know, if, if you're watching these movies for the first time, if you've seen them before, you know, what are the scary moments to you? Or what, you know, as we've talked about some of the deeper themes going on here, what resonated with you, we, we want to hear from you all and see what you're thinking. Absolutely. Well. So we'd love to continue the conversation there with you. And uh, Nathan, thanks so much for being part of this conversation with me today. Likewise, no problem, Reed. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Next week, the plan as of right now is to discuss the, the James Wan film from 2013, The Conjuring. So if you want to check that movie out and come back and join us for that conversation, we'd love to see you then. Nathan, thanks again. Likewise. We'll talk to you later. See you next time. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.